This is David Tarkington, lead pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. Thank you for downloading the sermon today. I encourage you to check out our website at firstfam.org. And if you get a chance, go to my blog, davidtarkington.com. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Anybody miss Shelvin? I think one of the requirements of filling this pulpit is to pick on Shelvin, so I, I think I had to do that. But, uh, it, it, good morning. It is an honor, as Dave said, for me to be here. My dad was pastor here from... Do I need to do something different? Okay. My dad was pastor here from 1973 to 1985, I believe. Um, and for those of you who raised your hands, I appreciate that. That just means you're old because you knew my dad back then. <laughs> Michelle and I met in the youth group. And at school, we were married in this church in what you now call the venue. We usually refer to it as a Kendrick Memorial Wedding Chapel, but if you want to call it the venue, that's okay. I understand that. You probably wouldn't get that. But this church means an awful lot to us. And uh, I was called to ministry a bit later in life, not as young as my dad, and served as a pastor for five years and, and serve in other ways now and fill in like this when I can. But we came home. We came back to First Baptist uh, when it was time to. So it's good to be back here. We have come and gone a couple of times as we moved. My children were in the youth group at one point. I preached at Island Church. And uh, a couple of the guys said, you're Callie's dad, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, she was our intern when we were in youth group. So as the day goes on, I'm progressively feeling older as we (laughs) move through all of this. But it is a joy to be here and an, and an honor to be here. And I hope you had a great Independence Day. It just makes it more special because I have two of my grandsons with me today. Uh, they come and spend two weeks with us, Camp Kendrick, every summer. And I say two of my grandsons because I've got to tell you that we just added a third on Independence Day. Uh, my daughter Mary Beth had a baby. So it's a very special time for us. But I hope you had a good Independence Day weekend. And as we close it out today, this four-day weekend, some of us were fortunate to have. I want to start by focusing on a speech, a famous speech from Revolutionary War times, made by Patrick Henry. Anybody know the last words of that speech? Give me liberty or give me death. That's right. He, he made this speech in Richmond, Virginia in 1775. The capital of Virginia at the time was Williamsburg, but the British troops were threatening there. The Royal Marines were there, so they, the Second Virginia Convention moved to Richmond, and he gave the speech in St. John's Church. And no one wrote it down at the time, but they pieced it together later from people like Thomas Jefferson, who was present, uh, Thomas Marshall, who was the father of John Marshall, our first chief justice of the Supreme Court. And the people were in awe. In fact, Thomas Marshall told his son, he said that speech was one of the boldest, most vehement and animated pieces of eloquence that had ever been delivered. There's a man named Edward Carrington who couldn't fit inside the church. He was actually standing at a window listening to the speech. And it overwhelmed him so much, he went home and told his family, he said, I want to be buried at that spot. And in 1810, when he died, he was buried at that spot outside the window of St. John's Church. So it left the listeners in silence initially because they were just stunned by the power of it. And it's resonated now for over two centuries. Give me liberty or give me death. So what is liberty? What is freedom? And why is it so precious that if we couldn't have it, we'd prefer death. We talk a lot about freedom in our country today, the freedoms we have and the freedoms we infringe upon and feel infringed upon, and there's a lot of back-and-forth dialogue about that, and it gets people spun up. 
But we're going to talk about true freedom today, the true freedom we find only in Christ. And we're going to use Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, to talk about what that means. What is liberty? What is death? So please turn there, and we'll get there in just a second. But our theme today is that true freedom is found in the sacrifice of Jesus. Romans 8 is often called the Christian's Declaration of Freedom. In chapter 7, Paul had started discussing this idea that we're free from the law. Paul, if you've read much of his letters, gets sidetracked. So he started discussing this, then he got interrupted, and and kind of went to a dark place in chapter 7. He talks about the sin in his life and how he struggles and it wars within him, and the sin that presses him down, and his sinful nature. But then beginning in chapter 8, he comes back to the idea that we're free. We're free from that sin because of what Jesus did for us, and that's where it starts. But you can kind of encapsulate where he was in chapter 7 by reading verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But let's read, as we discuss liberty, the first four verses of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words of Paul, which are your words penned through him by the Holy Spirit. And we know the Spirit is among us today. It's in each of us who are believers. And I pray that the Spirit speaks to us. Open our hearts as we open your word. There is richness here, Father. There is truth here. And we need to hear it. So I pray for the hearers of your word today, Father, that this word pierces them as it promised and that they are listening with their hearts to the truth you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is an announcement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment, no permanent judgment for believers. That's those who are in Christ Jesus, people who have accepted the grace that God offers, who believe what he gave them through Jesus. One of my favorite translations is by a guy named Kenneth Wust, W-U-E-S-T. It's very hard to read because it's very literal, but it can give you a sense of, of what the words are. And he said, there's not even one bit of condemnation. Condemnation is gone. Condemnation is that punishment that comes from our sin. There's not one bit of it. Condemnation is the opposite of a great big theological word we like to use, justification. And sometimes people get caught up in the terms. But justification, it's really the theme of the book of Romans. And it's when God looks at us through Jesus, the people who have accepted the grace of Jesus, the believers, God sees our righteousness that Jesus gives us. It's not our righteousness, it's his that he places on us. And therefore we're justified. We're put back into the right relationship with God. The relationship that it was always meant to be back in the garden. We were supposed to, what what did Adam and Eve do? They walked in the evening with God. That's the relationship he wants with us. Wants for us, and we've ruined that with our sin. So justification brings us back into that right relationship with God. So the opposite of that is the condemnation, the punishment, the judgment that is exercised. But the beauty of it is there's nothing we can do other than accept the grace God offers. Repent and accept the grace he gives us. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who do that, those who believe. Certainly your sin is not good. It should be condemned in a sense. But your life is not condemned if you believe, if you're in Christ Jesus. No permanent condemnation. But if that's true, the opposite must be true. There is condemnation for those not in Christ Jesus. And that's a scary thought. True freedom is that liberty from condemnation. But there are those who will be condemned. And we'll see what that means for both sets of people. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Old Testament law does condemn. But as Paul reminds us so often in all of his books, we're not under that law anymore. We certainly should be obedient to that law. That's God's moral code. But we're not judged by that law anymore. We're judged by the blood of Jesus. And Paul makes that point over and over again. But here he says there's a new law, the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. What's that? That's the indwelling Holy Spirit. Another big word we use sometimes, the indwelling. The Holy Spirit comes to us as believers, lives in us. It's the operative power Christians have to function in the world. We're going to talk more about that later. I know I'm saying a lot of laters, but we'll get to them. But that Spirit sets us free, as Paul says, from the law of sin and death. Paul wrote a lot about his sinful nature in chapter 7, particularly in verse 23. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There was a war going on inside Paul. It's what he wanted to do. He wanted to delight God. He wanted to honor him. He wanted to obey him. But he said, I don't always do that. My body has other ideas. And it goes back to something Pastor David said several weeks ago. We love our sin. We get comfortable in our sin. We want to continue that feeling. Sometimes it's a path of least resistance to give into temptation. And Paul said, I'm constantly about... This is the Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who says, I struggle, I fight. I'm at war in myself. But now as a believer, we are free once and all. That's the result of justification. The same war is waged in us every day. How do we overcome it? Can you overcome the law of gravity? If I take this pin out and let go of it, what's going to happen? No, it's going to soar to the ceiling. Right? No, it's going to fall. That's gravity. Can we overcome that? Birds do. Mosquitoes do. Which, I'm sorry to say, but they do. Aircraft do. How do they do it? Power. You know what, what defies the law of gravity, too? Vending machines. You put your coins in, that little thing turns, the chip comes out, and it stops. Gravity should bring it down, and it doesn't. We can overcome the gravity of sin, the weight of sin on us by plugging into the Holy Spirit, getting the power that the Holy Spirit makes available to us. I better pick this up or I'll forget it. We can overcome. We can overcome that war that goes within us. And in verse 3, he, he talks about the impossibility of the law. He condemns sin in the flesh. I'm sorry, I read the wrong thing. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. It is literally the impossibility of the law. The law is fine. The law is perfect. We are weak. And so the law can't save us because of our sin. We can never fulfill the requirements the law places upon us. It's our weakness 
that means it's an impossibility. But God did something about that. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh, in the likeness. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible are found in Philippians 2. I preach them as a Christmas sermon. I think I preach them as an Easter sermon. I know Dave worked through uh, Philippians not long ago. But in Philippians chapter 2, I just want to read a few verses to you, uh, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. That's what he did for us. He left his place in heaven. He didn't leave the attributes of being God behind, but he left his place in heaven and became like us. Took on that likeness of sinful flesh and paid the price, the ultimate humility of dying on a cross, one of the worst instruments of torture and execution we can imagine. Again, no deficiency in the law. It's perfect in every way, and Paul reminds us of that in chapter 7. But the medium in which the law had to work is us. That's you and me. And we're not perfect. Anybody in here willing to admit they're perfect? No. My dad shared an illustration that I love. He was a young preacher in Kentucky going to seminary, and he was asked to preach at a Sunday night service in a little rural church. And uh, he preached about sin, and a woman, a little old lady, came up afterwards and said, Preacher, I've never sinned. And he was a young, kind of dumb preacher. You wonder how to respond to that. He said, Really? You've never sinned? And she said, No, I have never sinned. And he had a thought. He said, Well, you must be proud of that. And she said, I'm very proud of that. And he said, Isn't pride a sin? <laughs> and he actually made it out of that church in one piece that night. I'm surprised that <laughs> happened, but... We have a pretty exalted view of ourselves, but we are weak. We are the weak ones. And the relationship God wants with us. In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, the prophet writes in the, in the word of God, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God's will is for us to have that relationship with him to be in that perfect bond with him. We can't achieve it through the law. It took the sacrifice of Jesus to restore that relationship. Jesus became the offering, the sacrifice, much like the sacrificial, sacrificial system in the Old Testament for the atonement of the sins of the people. He took that on. And his death fulfilled the law. In verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement. We are not righteous. What does Isaiah, what did he say when he saw the glory of God about his righteousness? Anybody remember? Well, his righteousness was like filthy rags. How many of you got up this morning and said, going to put on some filthy rags and go to church? Let me go out to the garage, you know, see where I change the oil. Maybe I can grab something and throw it over my shoulders. We don't do that, do we? We want to look good. And most of you do. Filthy rags. Compared to the glory of God, that's our righteousness. It's nothing. It's worse than nothing. That filthiness. The flesh that Paul refers to, unfortunately, we don't, a lot of times call that human nature. 
that's not the nature God made for us. That's not what we were supposed to be. It's really sin. It's our sinful nature. But we, we just say, oh, it's human nature to make mistakes. Human nature was to live in peace and harmony with God in that right relationship. And although we are at the flesh, as Paul says, we walk according to the Spirit because of salvation. Righteous living can only come through the power of the blood of Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit living in us gives us. That is liberty. That is freedom granted by Christ. It's something we cannot achieve in ourselves. It's an impossibility. True freedom only comes from him. Well, that's liberty. Let's look at death in verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's contrasting the saved and those not saved here. If you're living in the flesh, your mind is set on the flesh, it's set on the sin. But if your mind is on the spirit, you have to plug into the spirit to get that power. There's a story told of a vacuum salesman, back when vacuums were fairly new, who was trying to sell in rural Tennessee. And he found this cabin, shack, kind of further out from town. And he made his rounds and he got there and the young lady answered the door. He said, ma'am... If you buy this vacuum, it'll clean your house from top to bottom. It's the most amazing thing. And she said, well, that sure sounds good. And he said, you see that pile of dirt right there? It's got dirt, dust, fur, all that stuff. He said, if this vacuum can't pick that up, I will eat it. And she said, well, mister, you better get your knife and fork because we don't got electricity out here. (laughs) If you are not a believer, you don't got electricity. You don't got the power, I'm sorry, you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit to plug into, to enable you to live righteously. You cannot live righteously. It is an impossibility. That power is available to us. What are we doing with it? He talks about setting their minds on the thing of the flesh. It, it, it means what absorbs you, what habitually dominates your thoughts. Is it the things of the flesh or the things of the Spirit? We obey those impulses, those selfish desires. We cater to our body and not our souls and fill those appetites. And even though he's talking about the lost and the saved, as he said, he he was at war in his own body. We still struggle as believers with the things of the flesh. We are still tempted. We still fall. We falter. We can't live completely righteously. But we can tap in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. It's not simply a contrast between two ways of living here. If you don't set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you automatically set them on the things of the flesh. It's, it's the default position of our sinful nature to go to the things of the flesh. There's sort of a progression as we look at these verses, beginning in verse 3. In the flesh is kind of your basic moral, ethical condition. The mind of the flesh is how you set your hearts and minds based on that moral condition. And to walk in the flesh is the practice that comes from that mindset. How will you live out your life? How will you make the choices you make? And the same thing is true of the Spirit. Once you have the Spirit, you experience a new morality. You understand what God wants for you. That should change your mindset then, which should then change your behavior, causing you to live more righteously and more in tune with what God wants. In verse 6, he says, To set your mind on the flesh is death. Here's death, liberty or death. 
But to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. Alive in the body, but dead in the spirit. Dead toward God. You probably know many good people, many good ethical people who serve others, who make good choices, that are dead toward God. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They have not accepted the grace God offers. Dead. Death here equates separation from God. So give me liberty or give me death, not this death. Not this way. Not the way Patrick Henry meant it. It seems like an easy choice, but we make it very difficult due to our selfishness, due to our self-centeredness. We think pretty highly of ourselves. I love this story. It's about a, uh, when Eastern Europe first opened up um, and tourists started coming through, there was a walking tour going through various villages in the mountains. And they came to a village and looked down in the valley, and there was an old man sitting there. And one of the tourists, kind of a snob, said, were any great men born in this village? And the old man looked at him. He said, no, only babies. <laughs> only babies. That's what we are. We can think so highly of ourselves, but faced with the magnificence and the power of God, we're babies. There's nothing important about us except that God values us. He made us in his image, and he loves us. And that gives us immense value. Flesh is the enemy of God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Do you really want to be an enemy of God? That's not a very good position. That's a whole lot worse than being an enemy to the British in 1775. An enemy to God, hostile toward God. We are helpless in the flesh. Another fancy theological word we show around, unregenerate. People that live in the flesh that are dead to God. We are regenerated through our faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. But in fact, when you're lost, you're an enemy of God. Because that mindset towards sin and the enmity, enmity toward God, a person living in the flesh cannot submit to God. It is impossible. Paul tells us right here. Only the grace of Jesus makes it possible to have the Holy Spirit and to submit to God and what he has for us. And he, Paul couldn't state it more plainly than he does in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, impossible for sinful man, those in the flesh, those who don't believe, who haven't accepted the grace, impossible for them to gain God's approval. Again, give me liberty or give me death. Not this death. This death is eternal. Well, let's consider the idea of liberty because of death. As we read 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. The Spirit of God can dwell in you as a believer. And that... That sounds weird to new Christians, and sometimes even to old Christians. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
For you have been bought with a price, and therefore glorify God in your body. And he adds in Ephesians 2.22, In whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Jesus promised to send us the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter. And he did. I ran across a, a very simple yet a very profound statement. The believer is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the believer. I like that. The believer is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the believer. We have the Holy Spirit within us. In verse 10, Paul goes on to say, But if Christ is in you, now don't get hung up on there. You say, wait, the Holy Spirit's in me. Now Christ is in me? I'm running out of room for things to dwell in me, huh? There's no confusion there. This speaks to the the intimacy in the persons of the Trinity. Jesus is within us too. In fact, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He claimed he did power his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please rest assured there is tremendous compatibility between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So Christ in us. Your body is dead as sin, dead because of sin, even as a Christian, but the Spirit is alive. And he promises he will restore the body. But the Spirit's alive because of righteousness. Again, not your righteousness. It's filthy rags. It's probably an oversimplification, but here's a way I like to consider it. God looks down at John Kendrick and says, filthy, ugly, sin. And Jesus says, but I died for him. He accepted the grace that we gave him, Lord. And so God puts on his Jesus glasses And he looks at John Kendrick and says, wow, he looks a lot like you, Jesus. He has given me that righteousness. And so I am in right standing with him because of that. Otherwise, it's impossible. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. So one, we have a promise that our bodies will be resurrected. We will join Jesus in the resurrection. But think about this power that is available to us as believers. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same spirit that is mentioned in the second verse of the Bible. The spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The creative spirit of God that, that called the universe into existence, that raised Jesus from the dead, is here. And what do we do with it? What can you do apart from the Holy Spirit? Nothing. Now we can say, well, I can do a little bit. Or I can do, eh, not much. But no, no. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You can do nothing. What can you do with the Spirit? Anything righteous. But we let fear and timidity and lack of faith limit us. Jesus told the disciples, see that mountain? You can move it. And we kind of smirk at that. We can't move mountains. Well, Jesus said you could. We limit ourselves. We have that power in us, available to us. God can accomplish great things if we let him, but we don't let him, and he allows us to not let him. We're not robots. We're created in his image, yet he empowers us if we'll just do it. Liberty because of death. Because of the death of Jesus, we have true freedom. I love my country. 
But I should love my God first and foremost. In fact, I serve my country, but my service to God is what matters and what will accomplish things. I think we run a great risk of equating patriotism with our faith. I was driving um, past a church which shall remain unnamed on Friday. You know, I probably just realized I should have looked out here to see what we have a flagpole. I don't even know if we do. So I'm going to show this illustration and it may come home to roost. But this church had a flagpole out front with in, in proper flag etiquette under our laws, the American flag on top, Christian flag underneath. And I thought, wait a minute. And then Saturday, I drove past another church that had a flagpole like a cross with the American flag running up one side and the Christian flag running up the other. I thought, oh, that's a little better. But, but I think that first one is symbolic of the way a lot of Christians or people who think they're Christians view things. America first. Or America and Christianity right there together. They're the same thing. If you're a patriot, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a patriot. No. 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 I'm going to read something to you from Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Faith Hall of Fame. The writer of Hebrews goes through a number of Old Testament figures, some who would we automatically assume would be heroes, others we kind of question, like Samson. But he talks about their faith. And in verse, beginning in verse 13, 13 through 16, the writer says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They looked ahead to a promise. They knew they were strangers and exiles upon the earth. They desired a better country, heaven. That is our home. That is where our citizenship lies. I really don't think we're going to measure time in heaven, but for the sake of argument, 10,000 years from now, we're not going to be singing the national anthem in heaven. They're not going to be singing it in hell either. Where is your heart? Where is your citizenship? It's in that home. Earlier in Patrick Henry's speech, as he was addressing the president of the convention, he said, Mr. President, it is natural for man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who having eyes see not and having ears hear not? The things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation, for my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. Certainly great words in context and the, the, the striving for liberty in this country. But it's important words for us, too. We must know the truth about liberty and death, about true freedom and death. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he went on to say, the truth will what? Set you free. There's the freedom. Paul confirms that in 2 Corinthians 2.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's the freedom we seek. In the immortal words of Chris Christofferson, who wrote the ballad, Me and Bobby McGee, he said, freedom's just another word for 
Nothing left to lose. The island church didn't get that. That was a terrible reference to use for them. But freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. You have everything to lose if you pursue personal freedom based on your own desires. Everything, eternity, is in the balance if you make that choice. But you have everything to gain if you pursue the true freedom that Jesus offers. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake shall gain it. We must lose everything to gain that true freedom. Christopherson got a little older, and he wrote another song called Why Me? And the chorus, which I will not sing for you, goes like this. Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it so. Help me, Jesus. I know what I am. But now that I know I've needed you so, help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hand. The thrust of Henry's speech was that he would rather be dead if he could not live freely. And that's said in the vein that we cherish of the accepted and, and traditional spirit of American independence. However, today, people would probably rephrase that. Give me the liberty to live the way I want to and do what I want to, or give me death. Freedom means something different to them. But that kind of choice, that kind of freedom leads to death. By choosing personal freedom over true freedom that God's grace provides, you have chosen death. There is no middle ground. It's a very simple choice. Hopefully we'll never need to choose the way Patrick Henry called it, between liberty and death in the traditional sense. But that phrase has been used around the world. I've probably read of a dozen times other countries or movements have adopted it. The Greek national motto is liberty or death. And in their 1820 revolution, they adopted it, and it's still their motto. What I found fascinating, though, was in March 1941, the country of Yugoslavia signed a peace treaty with Nazi Germany. Not everyone was happy about that. People took to the streets, and their slogan was better grave than slave. Better the grave than to be a slave. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a believer, you are no longer a slave because of a grave. Jesus gave his life, was placed in that grave, rose from the dead, conquered death, conquered sin, that you could have freedom. And too often we just spit in his face and deny him. That's the choice to be made. Is it true freedom or is it death? Give me liberty or give me death. Give me the freedom that comes from Jesus' death. And you will live.